Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow by it. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that you have overseen the process of inspiration so that you, without interfering with the uh, personalities or style or human factors in the writers, guaranteed that that which they wrote was without error and that God the Holy Spirit who revealed these things to them and through them is the one who in, who indwells us and the one whose ministry is to fill us with your word that we may be able to think as you think about the things of your creation and the things of life and that we may be able to think in conformity to your word and conformity to your will and that we pray that as we open your word that God the Holy Spirit would enable us to understand that which he has revealed, that we can in turn apply it in every area of our life and our thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our study is in Ephesians chapter 4, specifically looking at uh, verse 5. And we're talking about that initial phrase, one Lord. The, the verse in verse 5 says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so last time I began by looking at the phrase, one Lord, leading us to examine what the Old Testament says about the deity of the Messiah, the one who would come. The context of our passages is found in this slide. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. That verse focuses on the ministries of the Holy Spirit. The verse we're looking at now is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, three aspects focused on in relation to the ministry of God the Son. And verse 6, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So when it comes to looking at the fact that we have one Lord, I pointed out last time we have to deal with what the Old Testament teaches really about the unity of God as opposed to how it might appear to some and is taken by those in Judaism to refer to a Unitarian monotheism. And so the verse that they go to, which is a very important verse in in Judaism, is called the Shema because the first word in the verse is the word Shema, which means to hear, to listen, to pay attention, to respond to what I am telling you. 
And it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they didn't start shifting to this sort of Unitarian monotheism right away after, the, after Christ and Jesus, but they started shifting uh, gradually over the next couple of centuries as they saw the fact that there was, were a lot of inroads that were being made in the Jewish community as a result of the witness and testimony of Christians. And so by the time you get about three or four centuries down the road, what has hardened within the Jewish community is the idea that this is really talking about a strict monotheism. But in studying the language, even rabbinical scholars have come to understand that the word that is translated one does not mean necessarily a Unitarian singularity. But that even, but that it has the idea of a one that is composed of a plurality. For example, it's the same word that is used when in Genesis chapter two that a man uh, shall live, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. You have a plurality even in a singularity. And so that when the Rabbis at the Jewish Publication Society translated the Tanakh in 1986. They translated it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Recognizing the context is to reject all of these other gods and goddesses in, in uh, paganism, all of the uh, polytheistic deities, and to just emphasize that it is God and God alone. Isaiah 48, 15, and 16 are one of many passages, especially in Isaiah, where we see evidence of a plurality in the Godhead in the Old Testament. Uh, the Verse 16 is the one that, is, that I'm focusing on. The speaker says, come near to me, listen to this. So we have to ask the question, who is the me? It comes at the end of the verse. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The me is not the prophet Isaiah. The me is a divine person, and it's combined with the Lord God and the Holy Spirit. So you have all three members of the Trinity mentioned here, and there are uh, at least seven or eight places in Isaiah where you have all three members of the Trinity showing up in a, in a single context. So this is the focal point of the one Lord. It is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, as I'll show you in just a minute. But we just summarize this as the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as one essence. He is one, but there is there are three persons, distinct persons. It's not that God shows up at one time with the mask of the Father, then he shows up later as the, with the mask of the Son or the role of the Son, and then he shows up later with the mask or the role of the Holy Spirit. That was a heresy that was rejected in the early church called modalism, that God just was one, a singularity, but he showed up in three different, three different modes. And so it was at the Council of Nicaea that it was really solidified how to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. They're not inventing it there. That's what the pagans and anti-Christians say. 
but they recognize that the and, and have recognized ever since the new the uh, first century that the Bible speaks of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What they didn't quite grasp was how do we articulate this, and so that is what is set forth at the at the Nicene Creed. And they express this, that they are all one in essence, but they are three in person. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are equally God with equality in all of the attributes. So the Son is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent in all of the other attributes, just as the Father is and just as the Holy Spirit is. And the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's not the Son or the Father. So you have this, this essence and distinction within the Godhead. There's unity and diversity at the very core of the ultimate reality in the universe. And so that is foundational to being able to understand and explain uh, very many things, one of which is the doctrine of divine love. Because in eternity, in eternity past, long before there are any creatures, God is still love. He has two persons to love. The Father loves the Son, the Father loves the Holy Spirit, and the Father is loved by the Son and by the Holy Spirit. If you have a singularity like you have in Islam with Allah, Allah is eternal, but he has no one to love if he is love. Now, love is never attributed to Allah in the Quran. And so he has to create. He is forced to create. If he is love, he has to create someone to love. So then if a deity must create an object to love, then he becomes dependent upon that object to love. And by definition, God cannot be dependent on anything. He is independent. And so the other alternative is that Allah is not love at all. And I think as we witness the history of, of Islam, and jihad, we recognize that love is not really an essential ideal in uh, in Islam, and it goes back to a faulty view of God. This is one reason I say Allah is not just another name for the God of the Bible. Never get tricked into that. So when the Bible says that we have one Lord, we have to address the question, what does Lord mean? Who is this Lord? And third, how do we know he is Lord? So we talked about this last time. What does the Bible teach about Jesus as the one Lord? And looking at the meaning of the word Lord. In the Greek, it is kurios, which can be translated Lord or Master, something, uh, a, a polite form of address, much like we would use the word Sir, and it would address someone who is in some sort of position of authority, some position of uh of ownership, perhaps, something of that nature. But it also is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. You have words like Adonai, which is similar to Lord, 
and it refers to Lord or Master, and it could be used of a human, and it's used of God as a form of expressing his authority. You also have the Hebrew word Elohim, which refers to God as a divine one, but it is Yahweh itself as the Hebrew name, which is the name that God explains to Moses as meaning, I am the self-existent one. It comes out, uh, it is based on the Hebrew to be verb, hayah, and it indicates I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. And so when we talk of Jesus as Lord, we're not talking as Jesus as just authority or the sovereignty of Jesus, although that's included. It's the idea that Jesus is God. He is fully God. He does not have derivative deity. He is not uh, created later. Uh, either in eternity past or in time, and uh, given deity. There is a, um, uh, that's a heresy in the early church. It was called Arianism because it was first articulated by a leader in the church in Alexandria in Egypt by the name of Arius. And that was declared a heresy at the Council of Nicaea. But today we have Arianism manifested by those people who come and knock on our door called the Jehovah's Witnesses. But if you've noticed since COVID, they're mailing you things. Now, we have a tract written by one of the uh, really outstanding professors at Dallas Seminary who's now with the Lord who is, that's out here on the table. We're ordering more. There's one left because I took the other one. I get I get a mail from some Jehovah's Witness every three or four weeks, and so I decided I'm going to get that, and the return address is there, so I'm going to mail it back, and you may want to do the same thing. So we're going to get some, um, have some more copies there uh, that that are available. But they have the same view. Jesus is a creature who receives deity at his baptism. And that's a typical also of Unitarianism, and it's also typical of liberal, liberal theology. So this one Lord is a reference to Jesus as God, and it's very clear in the Old Testament, as we went through a number of scriptures last time, that Jesus claimed to be God, and the Jews understood that. In John 8:58, he's addressing the Pharisees and said, "Before Abraham was, I am." That is how uh, God was referred to using the divine name. He says it in Greek, it's ego, a me, I am, and that's the equivalent of Yahweh. And immediately they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They understood that. Modern readers may not, but the Jews certainly understood he was claiming to be God. John 10.30, he said, I and my father are one, and the Jews took up stones again to stone him. There are a number of places and times when this happened in the life of Christ. So then we started to see what does the Bible teach about prophecy, and I pointed out that in the Old Testament, there are two passages that talk about the tests of a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 through 10 teaches that whatever a prophet says has to be in complete agreement with already accepted scripture. He can't contradict accepted scripture by saying, oh, let's go after this God or let's go after that God, which violates the first commandment. That's the example given in the text. 
So the second example, or the second test, is given in Deuteronomy 18.20-22, which says that every prediction has to come true in every little detail, so that if it's off, then that person is not really speaking for God, and they need to be stoned. So we're looking at these prophecies related to the Messiah. The Hebrew word, the noun, is Mashiach which refers to the anointed one. The verb form of it is masha, which is used in the passage we stopped with last time in Isaiah, I mean in Luke 4, 16 to 20, which is when Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth, God has determined the time of this event, and the Jews have a calendar so that every Sabbath they have a different reading that is set Uh, for that particular Sabbath. And so Jesus shows up, not by accident, on the exact day when Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, is to be read. And so he stands up to read that, and he reads through this quote, which is a messianic prediction. And the three verses of Isaiah uh, 61 all relate to that. And so he reads it, but at the end of verse 19, he stops, which is the middle of Isaiah 61.2. He's making a point. What is predicted in 61.1 through 2a is what's being fulfilled. The rest of it is not. When he finished, he closed the book, sat down, and everybody just staring at him. He is making a statement by stopping there. They understood that. He's claiming to be the one who's fulfilling this very prophecy. That's quite audacious if you're not the person that the prophecy is related to. And he says to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, liberals are very fond of saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, this is a claim to be God, whether you want to admit it or not. He doesn't have to say, I'm God. Hello, wake up. He, to, to be set, making a claim to deity, which he does throughout. So Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 begins with the statement, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, mashach, So he's claiming to be the anointed one by using that verb related to Mashiach. He's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and that's when he sits down. There's a break because between the middle of verse 2 and the uh, the, and the end of verse 3, that part of the prophecy is fulfilled in the future. A prophet looked at the future as if you were driving across the flat plains of eastern Colorado towards the Rocky Mountains, and I assume that if you're a Texan, you've taken at least one vacation to Colorado, that's pretty normative, or New Mexico, and you see the mountain range in the different in the distance, but you can't differentiate between the mountain peaks. They all look like they're right next to each other. 
But as you get closer and closer and closer, you begin to discover, well, one of those peaks is a whole lot closer than the one that had appeared to be right next to it. And then when you get there, you discover, well, there's a, a huge valley in between that may be 50 or 100 miles in, in length. And that is the way prophecy appears from the Old Testament. They can't distinguish gaps between certain events. They could see that Christ, the Messiah, was going to be born. The Messiah was going to be crucified. The Messiah was going to reign in his kingdom. But they didn't understand the chronological relationship uh, between those events. So Jesus is is showing that between the uh, first line of verse 2 and the second line of verse 2, that there's at least a 2,000-year uh, gap, and we're in that gap, and I think we're probably closer to the end than, than the beginning. So that's the first prophecy we looked at. Second prophecy comes out of Genesis 3.15, and this is in the midst of what is usually referred to as the curse on on the human race because of sin. I think that doesn't communicate very well. People think of a curse as some sort of juju black magic idea. And it's really the announcement of the consequences to sin. The penalty for sin is what? Spiritual death. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And it's stated very strongly in the Hebrew by repeating the verb for for dying in two different ways. And you find that lots of times it's typical of Hebrew to emphasize that. And what it is really saying is you are instantly going to die. It's an absolute certainty. Well, they didn't die physically when they ate of the fruit. But they were separated from God. As soon as God came to walk in the garden, what happened? They ran and hid. And God says, where are you? Not because God doesn't know where they are, but because he's pointing out for them to pay attention to, look at what's happening. You're running from me. That never happened before. I come here every day, and we have a wonderful time of fellowship and instruction and teaching, and now I show up and you run and hide. What's going on? It's really interesting to watch through Scripture, and especially in the life of Christ, how many times God or Christ points things out by asking questions. He doesn't tell them things. He asks them a question so that they come to the realization of what he wants them to pay attention to on their on their own just by thinking about it. And so... That's the penalty, spiritual death, separation from God, separation from the life of God, alienated from the life of God. And then later in chapter 3, he outlines what the judgment, what the consequences of spiritual death are going to be in all of the universe. It doesn't just affect Adam and Eve and their relationship to God. Romans chapter 8 says that the whole creation groans under the curse of sin. The most distant star in the universe was impacted by Adam's sinful decision. Even the makeup of the creatures on the earth was changed physiologically. 
We know this. The example in the scripture is the way that a, a serpent would move is changed so that now it will go on its belly in the dust on the ground. Uh, we know that prior to the fall, they were, the, Adam and Eve were said that they were to eat from the fruit of the garden. Afterward, they are given a broader description of what they can eat, but it's all, uh, it's all vegetarian. It's no, no meat. They're not carnivores. And there's no carnivorous activity among the animals. We'll see this again, passages like Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66 that describe the millennial kingdom, that the curse is, is partially rolled back during that time, and the wolf will lie down with the lamb. An infant can put his hand into a cobra's den, and there's no damage because that animosity between the animals and mankind has gone away, and, there's, and they're not going to be meat eaters again. But they were, they were only herbivores prior to the fall. But after that, some animals changed and developed. You know, it would affect their gastrointestinal system. It would uh, change. There would be an adaptation of, uh, of, their, of, of their teeth. Uh, things of that nature would be would be modified, so the sin reverberates through all of creation as a consequence of Adam's sin, and we tend to think of sin as well. It just just affected them and God. It just affected a few other things, but it it changes. In fact, the laws of thermodynamics shift at that time because when God creates a perfect world then there is a, a perfect balance and, and he's created uh, energy and mass. The first law of thermodynamics is there's a set finite amount of energy and, and mass. But the second law of thermodynamics is it's running down. Everything is be, all energy mass is being used up and moving, moves into a state of entropy or non-usable uh, energy. And so how long can you go when you have a finite amount of gas in your car and it's always going to run down, can you go forever? Can you go for billions and billions of years? No. I mean, that's a great argument. The universe just can't be that old because it would have run down a long time ago. That, that's the real energy crisis. Of course, environmentalists don't want to talk about that energy crisis because that gets them too close to the scriptures. But everything's going to run down, and that, that change, all that's the result of sin. We, we need to have a robust biblical view of sin and its consequences and not our little self-centered view of sin. And it, it's too easy for us to rationalize away sin when we have a small view of sin. So anyway... God outlines the consequences of sin, and the first statement he makes is addressed to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. The serpent's seed are those who follow in the path of the serpent and are against God. The serpent, of course, was indwelt or used by Satan in order to tempt the woman. And then he says, uh, this enmity will be between your descendants and her seed, a very odd construction. Women have eggs or ovum, 
men have sperm, which comes from the Latin word for seed. We don't talk about the seed of the woman. That indicates there's something odd going on here. We come to understand it when we get to Isaiah 7.14 and we learn that there is going to be something miraculous that takes place in the womb of a virgin and she is going to be enabled to give birth and have a child. But this just gives a hint of that and so this is called by theologians the proto-evangelium. It's the first mention of the gospel or indication of the gospel. And what it introduces is that there is going to be this conflict now because of sin between good and evil, between the plan of Satan and the plan of God. And it will result in the two deaths. There is a death that you will, you will bruise him on the, on the head, or excuse me, he shall bruise you on the head. When you crush somebody's head, that's a fatal wound. So there's a fatal wound for the serpent that will be fulfilled. And the second, you, that is the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, If a cobra bites you on the heel or on the finger, you're going to die just as quickly as if the cobra bites you somewhere more significant or closer to your heart. And so both of these indicate that there will be a death. But the seed of the woman won't stay dead. The seed of the woman will conquer death and have victory over death, and that will bring about the resurrection. Now, this is written by Moses after the Israelites leave Egypt and after they probably, he's writing this during the 40 years that they're in the wilderness. So all we can say it's written by at least 1406 B.C., 1405, something like that, when they enter into the land. But it's made on rec- based on records earlier. When we studied Genesis, some of you have gone through that years ago. There's this statement that you find again and again, and it, it's translated, these are the generations of, this is the record of, and it's, a, and it's that idea that there were records that were kept by the antediluvian uh, fathers between Adam and Noah of their history, of the genealogies of these events, And I believe that all of these records are preserved until Moses comes. And, uh, of course, God the Holy Spirit is giving him the information, but that doesn't mean he didn't have records that he was looking at as well. Luke clearly states that he is looking at family records and genealogies and things like that that were kept in the temple and historical records when he's writing his gospel. So this is a prophecy that is made in 1405, and it's fulfilled around 2 B.C. Sometimes you'll see people saying 4 B.C., but there's been recent studies indicate that maybe the there was another um, uh, eclipse. Herod's death is tied to an eclipse, and that eclipse, a lot of scholars have thought, was one a partial eclipse in 4 B.C., but there was another eclipse in 2 B.C., and so now there's a big debate. And I think it fits better if it's 2 B.C. Um, Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. But notice there's a connection between Genesis 3.15, I 
mentioned Isaiah 7.14 and now Galatians 4.4. Also, that skips over other passages we're going to look at in Matthew 1 and in Luke uh, Luke 2. The third thing is that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin, or the Messiah is born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. This prophecy is given to Isaiah uh, in 735 B.C. Now, when did I say... Moses wrote Genesis 3. That's around 1406, 1405 B.C. So this is cuts the time in half. This is 735 B.C. And the, uh, Isaiah 714 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So two things to note here. Number one, there's a lot of controversy over the Hebrew word translated virgin. There are two words used in Hebrew, betula, which seems to have in almost every passage except for a couple the idea of a virgin, but it could be an older woman as it is in some passages. Alma refers to a very young woman who is of marriageable age and has not had relations with a man. And so that's a better fitting term here to be used of the mother of our Lord. So it should the the, uh, the rabbis who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, uh, that Greek translation is known as the Septuagint. This was around 200 to 250 B.C. The word they chose in Greek to translate the Hebrew word Alma was Parthenos which is the word you've heard of the Parthenon, which is where Athena, the virgin goddess, is worshipped in Athens. Okay? So uh, Parthenos relates to a virgin. So they understood that that's what was being said in the passage. It's not a sign that an unmarried woman conceives and gives birth. If you look around Houston, there's lots of unwed mothers. This is talking about something that is a sign. It's something that's extremely unusual, if not impossible, something that indicates divine work. And his name will be Emmanuel. The last syllable, L, is for God. Im, I am at the beginning, is the Hebrew preposition with. And the A-N-U is the Hebrew suffix for us. So it's God with us. So this is a passage that is talking about, A, a birth of a child, which means the child is human, and that the name of the child is God with us, which means the child is fully God. So the Old Testament now clearly predicts that the Messiah is going to be both divine and human. This is fulfilled in Matthew 1.18, In the midst of this, I didn't quote it again, but in the midst of it, there is a quote of Isaiah 7.14. But in Matthew 1.18, we read, After his mother Mary was betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, that is, before they were intimate, uh, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, once he finds out she's pregnant, Uh, is worried at night. So the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, don't worry because this is of the Holy Spirit. And just 
abstain from relations, but go ahead and marry. And that's what he did. Verse 24, then Joseph took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He is to be the seed of Abraham. This is our fourth prophecy. In Genesis 22:18, God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, and this is just after the episode at the beginning of the chapter where God told Abraham to take his son, his only son. Does that sound familiar? Language of John 3:16. Take your son, your only son, and take him to uh, Moriah and sacrifice him. And this is after a whole series of different tests, with most of which Abraham failed. But he finally learned his lesson that God's going to be true to his promise that I'm going to have a son, and it is through that son that the Messiah is going to come. And so I can trust God some way, one way or the other. Either he's going to bring the child back to life, which is what the writer of Hebrews says he was thinking. He finally understood, well, even if he has me kill him, he's going to bring him back to life. So Abraham is not thinking, oh, I've got to do child sacrifice like the pagans. He says, okay, God, you've got another test. I'll pass it, and I know you're going to make everything right. That was the issue. You're going to trust God more than your experience, more than your feelings, more than your emotions, or you're going to do what I, what I say to do. And so he uh, was all ready. He had the knife. He was ready to sacrifice Isaac, and God stayed his hand and gave a substitute. There was a ram caught in the thicket, and that was a picture of substitution. Fabulous story related to to illustrating salvation. And so the offering was the ram and not Isaac. And so as a result of that, God again affirms the covenant with with, uh, Abraham and says, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so this was first stated back in Genesis 12, 2, and 3, and it's been restated four or five times throughout the life of Abraham. That's the core of the Abrahamic covenant. Their further promises are going to be made to his son Isaac and then to Jacob and then ultimately to Judah that we're going to see, but I'm not going to run through all of those uh, prophecies as well. The fulfillment of this is in 2 B.C., the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew begins his gospel, telling us that Jesus Christ is the descendant of David. That's a fulfillment of prophecy, which we'll see here as well, and the son of Abraham. Galatians 3.16, Paul writes, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, there's something interesting about that particular promise in Genesis 22:17, the verse before the one I have quoted. In English, it translates it, in your seed, because the word seed is, in Hebrew, is one of those words like deer in English. It's the same form whether it's plural or or singular. And so seed in and of itself could be translated into English as plural or singular. 
But that verse which says, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. See, that's the same word and there it's in the plural. As the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your, listen to this phrase, and your descendants. See, now it's the same word, same form as you had earlier where it was translated correctly as plural. Now it it says your descendants. You have to decide as a translator. We're going to translate it as a singular or translate it as a plural. And so it says, and your seed literally shall possess the gate of and it's translated in English with the word there, a plural pronoun. But guess what? I don't have this on the screen, so don't try to look over there. Um, guess what? That pronoun in the Hebrew is a singular pronoun, but it's mistranslated in almost every English translation. And in the, in the Hebrew, it reads, he shall, your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, singular. Guess who's that talking about? Guess who's that talking about? It's not talking about all of Abraham's descendants here, but one specific one. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies in your seed, all the nations. See, it just follows. So it's singular, even though if you see the reason I have to say that if you went back and looked at it uh, in some other translation, it may translate it as a plural in Genesis. So that's that's how the Hebrew reads. Fifth prophecy. This is. Uh, Jacob, right before he dies in Genesis chapter 49, going through his 12 sons and giving a little prophetic oracle about each one. Regarding his son Judah, he says, the scepter, the sign of being a ruler, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until he whose right it comes... It is comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, if you look at that in English, I retranslated that. It has the word Shiloh, but based on, and I've covered this a lot in other passages, based on that use of that phrase in Jeremiah, it should be translated, he whose right it is, not a name Shiloh. So it's uh, we've re, I've retranslated that correctly it's talking about the messiah the one whose right it is will come he's the one who will bear the scepter it's fulfilled in luke 3:23 that is the promise that uh, that he will be a descent of descendant of judah in luke 3:33 is the son of perez the son of judah so all of these birth promises that we've looked at uh, with the exception of isaiah 14 come out of genesis which is written f- 1400 years before Jesus is born. That's a pretty good record to have. uh, And there's at least six prophecies, six or seven prophecies in Genesis just related to the line of the Messiah. And so the chances of six of those coming, coming true in one person are pretty, pretty astounding. He's going to be from the house of David, according to Jeremiah 23, 5, and it's fulfilled in Luke 3, 23 and 31. Jeremiah 23, 5, God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That fulfillment comes in Luke 3.23, which says that Joseph, uh, or excuse me, this is tracing the line of Mary, 
based on uh, the son of Heli. In Luke 3.31, it goes traces his genealogy back through Nathan, the son of David. Matthew traces the legal back through Solomon, but Jesus wasn't a direct biological descendant because that's the line of Joseph. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, 720 B.C. Micah was a prophet about the same time and overlapped with Isaiah. Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, it's Bethlehem Ephrata because the founder of this Bethlehem, the one in Judah, was a man named Ephrat. Now, you, there are other Bethlehems in Israel, so this distinguishes it just as if you were to say um, something like uh, Salem, Massachusetts, would distinguish that Salem from Salem, um, Illinois. So this tells us which Bethlehem it is, very precise. Couldn't be just any Bethlehem, has to be this one that is in Judah. Out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. So this is clearly talking about the Messiah. His goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And the way that's structured in the Hebrew is very clear. He's eternal. This is the one who's going forth are from eternity past. But he's born in Bethlehem. So you have two things stated there. Number one, he's born, which is the same as Isaiah 7.14. It emphasizes he's a human being, fully human, and a woman will give birth to him. But he's also eternal. He's going to be divine. This is fulfilled in Matthew 2.1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Psalm 2.7 says that he is declared by God to be the Son of God, the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 2.1 said that the kings of the earth have gathered together against Yahweh and his anointed one, his Messiah. And then in verse 7, it said, he declares, Yahweh declares that, his, that the Messiah is my son. So he's given the title Son of God. In Matthew 3.17, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, God speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. And everybody could hear it and everybody could record it on their uh, recorders if they had any. Also, you have Isaiah 9.6, which is another messianic prophecy, which says, For unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given. For a, the child that is born emphasizes his humanity because he's given birth to, and the title son relates to him as deity that he is given, he's given by the father. The, further, there are, there are titles listed here. There are uh, five titles that are mentioned here. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Wonderful in the Hebrew is a distinctive word that is only used of God in the Old Testament. Mighty God is the term for uh, God as, uh, as powerful, 
and that that of course is emphasizing his de- the deity of this child that is born everlasting father always confuses people because the son is not the father but this should be translated as the father of eternity which is just an idiom for saying he's eternal so all of these emphasize that the messiah is going to be both human and divine uh, the ninth one I'm listing here is from Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, where God tells Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. This was understood to be a messianic promise by the Jews. And in a couple of passages, he is identified as this prophet. In Matthew 21:11, the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And in John 4:19, the woman at the well says to him, I perceive that you are the prophet. And she doesn't use an article in the Greek which indicates she's emphasizing the quality of the prophet. So she's identifying him with this messianic prophecy. And the disciples did as well in uh, Acts 3:20. 21, as Peter is speaking, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 18 in verse 22, identifying Jesus as this prophet, where he says, quoting it, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And so the disciples understood that. The 10th prophecy is in Psalm 41, 9, which says, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is talking about a betrayal. And it is fulfilled in John thirteen eighteen. Jesus is speaking and says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So this is a prophecy related to his betrayal by uh, Judas, and this is also referenced in Acts 1, uh, 16 through 18, related to uh, the death of Judas. In verse 16, uh, Peter says, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. We have two more. He's crucified. Psalm 22:16 is a psalm that speaks, looking through the corridors of time, of one the Messiah being crucified. And it says in verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. And this is fulfilled in Luke 23:33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then the resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead. He was in the grave for three days, three nights, a Hebrew idiom. And uh, the prediction in Psalm 1610, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One uh, to see corruption. And that is stated by Peter to be fulfilled at the resurrection in Acts 2, 31 and 32. For seeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now, there's just 12 predictions 
that are fulfilled literally at the first coming. But there are close to 100. There's over 300. There's some 500, some people say, uh, different prophecies related to the Messiah in the Old Testament. There are over 100 that were fulfilled by Christ at the first coming. But So we should ask the question, well, what's the probability that that could just happen? Oh, well, that just happened by chance, some skeptic will say. And um, a man by the name of of, uh, Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks back in the 50s where he looked at a couple of different uh, options for probabilities. The first, he looked at the probability of only eight of these coming to pass in one person. Regarding his methodology, Harold Hartzler from the American Scientific Affiliation at Goshen College wrote, the manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members and by the executive council of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. So what did Peter Stoner say? He said, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. That is one or a ten uh, followed by 17, or excuse me, a one followed by 17 zeros. Now he works that out. The illustration, I've used it several times. The illustration he used is if you take the state of Texas and you cover it with silver dollars up to a height of two feet. I misspoke last week. I think I said four. Two feet. You mark one of them with uh, fingernail polish blindfold somebody and they have to they have to go out into the whole state of Texas down in the valleys up the mountains down in the canyons and the chances of them picking that one coin is equivalent to the chances that eight of these would come true in one person but there's a lot more than eight in fact stoner goes on to say that just the eight proves the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they they should be. In such a case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of having them come true in any man, but they all came true in Christ. This means that the fulfillment of these eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of those prophecies to a a definitiveness that lack, which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power being absolute. Then he goes on to say, we find that the chance that any one man fulfilled all 48 prophecies, that's what he lists in his book. For one man to fulfill all 48 prophecies to be one in 10 to the 157th power. That's a one followed by 157 zeros. And then he goes into a description that frankly eludes me because he is talking about how many electrons there are on an inch, one inch line. 
and that if you took all of those electrons on a one-inch line and marked one of them, the chances of picking one of them, and there would be, you know, we can't grasp the number of electrons, that would be the chances of 48 prophecies coming true. But there was more than 48 prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus in the first coming. And so we know that on the basis of the evidence of Scripture, that the man who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, is not telling a lie. He's not being deceptive. He is not uh, crazy. But he is saying that this is the absolute truth and that there's no other way to get to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. In John eleven twenty five and 26, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The issue is faith. It's not reason. It's not irrational. But we can't arrive at this information through reason alone. We use our reason to understand what the words mean and what the sentences mean, but we have to understand that the, mean, the meaning by faith because when we're there, we can't see it. We have to trust in the word of God, and God gives us evidence. As Luke says at the beginning of Acts in Acts 1, that Jesus appeared to his disciples with many convincing proofs. Jesus doesn't expect us to put our brain in neutral and just believe something because, well, it sounds good and I've got to believe in something. That's the way the world works. God gives us evidence to substantiate the fact that he is the one who has spoken. And so when we look at a passage like Ephesians 4 and it says, One Lord, we have confidence that this is talking about Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity who is fully man and fully God, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to examine just these few passages in a very quick manner that give us great confidence in our Savior, that he is who he claimed to be and he did what he claimed to do, and that was to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins, that he is our Savior and that he has provided for us forgiveness of sin so that we can be made alive again. We can be made alive to you because Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and that by simply trusting in him and him alone, we have everlasting life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here, anyone listening online, we pray that they might have a clear understanding of the gospel and the claims that you have made and that Christ made to give us eternal life simply on the basis of faith. We can't do anything. We can't work hard enough. We can never eradicate the corruption that is against us, the sins that are against us. But we have a Savior who can, and we trust in him alone. So, Father, we thank you for these things and ask that as we reflect on what we've learned today, that it may increase our awe of the scriptures and of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.